my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. It's really hard to say you're committed to health as a retailer and sell something that kills half a million people a year. In the year after we got out of tobacco, sales of cigarettes across all retailers went down 1%. It's 100 million fewer packs of cigarettes sold. I lost my father to lung cancer when I was seven. I have a seven-year-old. To this day, I always think about how old is my son now? I didn't have my father. I'm going to be here for him. So now think about 100 million fewer packs of cigarettes sold and how many more fathers and mothers will be there for their kids. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of data and creativity, the spark that changes businesses. Today, we have someone who is an expert at creating that spark, Norm DeGrav, the CMO of CVS.
He's a first-generation American, not only a great and innovative marketer, but an overall smart guy. MBA with honors from University of Chicago, Booth School of Business, Copley Real Estate Advisors Investment Manager, Mercer, and he was president of Boston, Detroit, Digitas before he made the jump to CVS. He combines business, marketing, and creative skills with success in all the components and all together. Norm, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're going to explore it all, but first, we want to get to do Norm in 60 seconds. Don't think too long. Give us your quick answer. All right. Norm, do you prefer sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. American football or European football? American. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Spring or fall? Spring. Call or text? Text. Skiing or snowboarding? Skiing. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Rhode Island or New York? Ooh, that could get me in trouble. New York. (laughs) It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Neil deGrasse Tyson is the smartest person I've met. David Kenny, CEO of Nielsen, would be the smartest person I know. First job? Lifeguard. Favorite TV show? Right now, Jack Ryan. All-time favorite TV commercial? When God Made a Farmer. Favorite city? Chicago. Last vacation? Bahamas. Historical idol? Is Obama historical? Historical enough. Favorite sport? Baseball. Favorite food? Indonesian. What did you want to be when you were growing up? An architect, a physicist, business person, a doctor, and I'm none of those. (laughs) You're working at CVS. That's getting close. What does the perfect day look like for you? Up early, lots of time to get done, the things that are important to me, end of the day, time with the kids and family. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? To make wishes come true. All right. Let's jump into it. One of the biggest transitions in American business, the shift of CVS from a local drugstore to a multifaceted healthcare company. You joined about the time CVS boldly stepped up to health as their core differentiator and in the process delivered an authenticity that most companies could just dream about. CVS stopped selling tobacco products in 2014 at a loss, I understand, of about $2 billion in annual revenue. That's got to be one of the most daring steps I can think of No matter how right it is, I'm not sure I could have ever brought myself to do something like that. How did that happen? If you go back to the history of CVS, it started as a drugstore. Then they rolled up drugstores across the country. They got to a point in the mid-2000s in which it was really a decision of what's the next step? Who are we? There's not that many more drugstores left to be rolled up. What's our next stage of growth? That's when the company really committed to the idea of health. When you commit to that idea, you very quickly say, there's an inconsistency in our commitment, which is that we're selling a product that is the number one cause of preventable death in America. And so you say, well, we shouldn't be in that product, but there's a problem. We make $2 billion a year off that product, and Wall Street's pretty unforgiving. The idea had been around for a while. The question was when and how. So here was the gamble. Get out of tobacco, lose $2 billion on the retail side, and By demonstrating our commitment to the health of members and employees of other companies, we would grow the B2B side of our business even more. So we'd sell fewer $10 packs of cigarettes and get more $10 million contracts on the B2B side. And it worked. If you look at when we got out of tobacco in 2014, the revenues of CVS were somewhere in the $130 billion range. We went from Fortune 13 to Fortune 7 in two years. Wow. So what was the reaction of employees Did they get it immediately? Well, this gets to a really interesting point about purpose and why have a purpose and what does purpose really mean? Because we did three things at this time. We got out of tobacco. 
we changed the company's name at the time. It was called CVS Caremark. So we changed it to CVS Health, which was much more indicative about who we are and where we wanted to go. And we codified the purpose of the company, the why this company exists, which is to help people on their path to better health. When all three of those things happened in 2014, we saw the single largest rise in the engagement scores of our employees in the history of the company. I think that there are two reasons for that. The first was getting out of tobacco, really demonstrating, taking a sacrifice to do the right thing, and that just makes all of your employees proud. And the second is we moved from an idea of a vision, you know, help people achieve their best health outcomes, to a purpose, which was to help people on their path to better health. There's a very big difference in those two. The first one is really about us and what we want to achieve. The second is about what you do for others. It's actually quite simple. There's so much nobleness in helping people, and everyone can relate to it. So everybody in the company could relate to the purpose. If you're in a store, you know how to do that. If you're a merchant, you know how to do that. If you're the CEO, you know how to do that. These things all came together, and they drove incredible engagement in the employee population, which I'm convinced had a significant impact on our growth. What about Wall Street? There was a lot of worry about what Wall Street's reaction would be. In fact, Kramer had a piece that said, you've just reduced your cash flow. That means your stock is worth less. Interestingly enough, the stock went up. It went up immediately? Yeah. So why did that happen? The thinking is that everybody can connect to tobacco. Everybody has a story of someone in their family or a friend who was affected by this thing. They can feel it, and there's a human truth in it. And so when we got out of it and demonstrated our commitment not to be in that, they connected that, and they almost wanted us to succeed. Larry Merlo was the CEO at the time, and while everybody was on board, that must have been a very restless night for him. I can only imagine. What did Big Tobacco say? What was the reaction there? They didn't say much. I mean, what can they say? They're on the wrong side of a lot of issues, and so they were just quiet about it. And your agencies? The agencies, they're generally filled with young people who are thrilled for these sorts of moves. More recently, we said to our agencies, we won't work with any agency that works with Big Tobacco. To work with us, you have to sign a commitment saying you won't work for Big Tobacco because we don't want to be part of that or subsidizing a company that's also doing that. They all came along, every single one of them. This was just the beginning of the ongoing major transformation. I really want to dig into it more. But before we do that, I want to get back to you. And we want to talk a little bit about what shaped you. Your parents immigrated from the Netherlands before you were born. Indeed. Why did they come to the U.S.? Well, my father's family was escaping the war, World War II, got the last boat out of Portugal. My father's family all went back, but he stayed and made a life here. And my mother came on her own. My mother met him here. I mean, they came here with no connections whatsoever, and it's the American dream. I mean, they just made it all happen. It's really incredible. Do you think being first-generation American, especially with your parents escaping something, had an impact on you? A hundred percent. When you grow up with parents that are not from the U.S., I think you always, to some extent, feel like an outsider. You don't have the intuition for the norms or the customs, and so it makes you quite an observer of people and quite a listener, honestly. And so that's really helped me succeed in my job today. I can observe in meetings what's happening. I can observe customers and what they think. I'm curious to hear what their perspectives are. That's one piece. Maybe another piece is you got to make it. You know, the story of America, the biggest motivators for many people are fear and greed. And I think I probably had both. (laughs) Where did you grow up? The Berkshires. We moved to Scotland for four years, North Carolina for a few years. So we spent some time in the South and then New Jersey, then off to 
boarding school. I know you see these cultural differences between the Dutch and the Americans. Mm. In spite of the fact that much of early America was influenced by the Dutch, what did you consciously feel about those two cultures? Or was the Dutch culture sort of eradicated? Dutch culture is very tolerant. That's certainly in me. It's very pragmatic. That's certainly me. It's very direct, which is probably in me as well, I've been told. But my parents, in classic Dutch fashion, were like, we're here in America, this is where we are, and we're moving on. So as I understand that you graduated high school from a Quaker school. I did. The Quakers also have a very clear philosophy and culture. Was that an influence on you too? A hundred percent. You know, actually, my freshman year of high school, I went to a military academy. I'm probably the only kid in America who wanted to go to a military academy, but I did, and my parents were crazy enough to let me do it. And I quickly realized that wasn't a good idea. It didn't align with who I was. So I went from a military academy to the pacifist Quakers. Your choice as well? My choice as well. That had a huge impact on me. It probably fed a bit of my, uh, you can call it liberal side, but certainly a side of how do you help others and how do you feel an obligation to do more in the world than just earn money. You know, the Quakers, they believe everybody's equal. So as a high school student, this is marvelous, right? Because you call your teachers by their first name. You're totally rebelling and everybody's your equal. When you get older, then you also realize that everybody's equal. The people younger than you are also equal, right? And so you have to treat everybody the same way. If you think about this concept of outsider, you were talking about the outsider as first-generation American, outsider in terms of being at the Quaker school and everybody's equal. Has that continued for you? I mean, do you sort of still think of yourself as that outsider conditioned by that? of your youth? In some ways, it's fueled my desire to never be satisfied with where I am, to always keep striving. I don't feel like I've ever achieved what I want to achieve. You know, you're the outsider. Maybe it's an insecurity that moves you along. So you chose a military academy. You chose a Quaker school. And then you chose Ithaca College. Yeah. Why? What's the continuation there? What's the thread? Well, I'd like to give you an intellectual story, but the truth is it was the first place I got into, and I was <laughs> I hated doing the applications, and I was done. <laughs> you went to Ithaca College. Yeah. What was your original career expectation? This is the moment where I thought about physics. This is the moment where I thought about architecture. My father's a scientist, and I grew up with that, and I loved the idea of curiosity and understanding the world, and to me that was what physics was. And I also love the idea of design and bringing physics and design together, which to me was architecture. And then I settled in in economics mostly because it was a way of understanding the business world. Same idea of systems thinking. I think at that point I was thinking, how do I have a career which will help me get ahead in the world? And that seemed like the easiest. Looking at you and your career, you were an investment advisor in real estate in Mm -hmm. Boston you went to a spinoff of Bain Capital, uh, Corporate Decisions, and then six years later, you entered business school, mm. the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. You already had a career. Mm-hmm. Why did you sort of stop the career and say, I need to get an MBA? Curiosity, I think. The finance world is great for many people. I didn't have the passion for it. I felt like it was an Excel spreadsheet, and I could make Excel spreadsheets really well at that time, but it all depended on what numbers you put into the cells, and I didn't feel equipped to really decide, well, what are the assumptions that we're making? And I'm not trying to be critical, but I looked around, and I'm like, I don't know that anybody here has really been really trained on how to understand that. And so to me, business school was a way of starting to think broader to understand the assumptions that you're making about why this will succeed or not succeed, which is really all the spreadsheet is doing. The Booth School at the University of yes. Chicago is very right. quant, very mathematical. Very quant, right. I mean, very serious academics. Mm-hmm. 
did you specifically choose that as opposed to the case study schools that were much more sort of marketing driven? I did because it was also the most flexible curriculum. While it is known for finance and quant, I didn't have to take those courses and I didn't really want to because I'd spent so much time doing that. You came out of graduate school and you jumped into management consulting at Mercer. Why there and what was your dream of going into that direction from where you had been? The why I did it was because I couldn't choose any other specific industry. (laughs) So it was kind of a way to postpone making a decision. And I thought I'd learn something. I did that for just about two years. Looking back on it now, I highly recommend it for so many people because it gives you the audacity to believe that you can solve any problem and a way of communicating in paper and in presentation standing up that is valuable for the rest of your life. In fact, the skills that I use now as a CMO of you know Fortune 5 company are at least 50% the skills I gained in management consulting. David Solomon, who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs, was on, and he was talking about the skills that he values the most he got at Hamilton College, which was learning how to write and public speaking. Yeah. To the point that you've made, which is the power of storytelling. You can communicate facts, but if you don't communicate facts in a story, you're not half as effective. Right, right. And so who did you work on at Mercer? Was there anything that grabbed your attention? I did something in the trucking industry. It was very oh, but that's interesting. <laughs> in the air compressor industry, not so exciting. I did some stuff with the internet companies as well. Did some stuff with direct marketing companies. But what happened there was, this was early 2000s, we were helping all these companies have internet strategies because they all wanted to participate in this. And I thought, I'd like to have an internet company. I actually left there and started a venture, got venture backing with a colleague there and learned a lot in that experience. It was one year from formation to funding to staffing to selling to the buyer going bankrupt. What was the company? It was called Green Zebras. It was purchasing solutions in the construction industry. Was it after that you joined Digitize? Yeah. And you came into Digitas to head up strategy, Mm -hmm. media, analytics. How big was Digitas then? It was in the hundreds, let's say 600s or so. It was kind of mostly Boston, New York. Digital advertising was still in its infancy. I was at AOL then, and I think the whole industry was about 4 to $5 billion then, being at Digitas at that time. What did you think digital advertising was, and what was it going to be? Let's just start with what I thought marketing was. When I was at Corporate Decisions or CDI, the whole company was premised on customer-driven growth strategies. Identify the customers, know what their needs are, and build a business that can make money by satisfying those needs better than anyone else. And that has forever formed my idea of what marketing is. It is customer-driven growth strategies. And so at the time, David Kenny was the CEO, and his idea was to bring management consulting and advertising together to bring that strategic, rigorous thinking with the annuity revenue of advertising together. The digital space brought the magic of targeting, or maybe the math of targeting from direct marketing, and the magic of creative that was not available in any real direct marketing options at that time. And so the idea was if you bring them together, can you be even more effective and connect with people in a different way and have interconnectivity, interaction and communication, which is you know what we've seen happen. And we were also driving the quantification of results. Originally, this was just a bolt-on. And yeah. then I'll have this agency to do my digital yeah, stuff. Yeah. What was the big breakthrough that took digital advertising into the mainstream? AOL was the first biggest one that really drove consumer behavior at scale. So if you wanted to reach a certain segment of consumers, you could reach them in a significant way and have impact on your P&L. Google and search, you had to be there. 
And then it kind of multiplied from there. You could see the car companies with all the Kelly Blue Book and those sorts of sites. And so there's a lot of money there. The companies that were later to the game were the companies that were less direct response oriented. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome back to Math and Magic. We're here with Norm DeGrav. 
So by 2014, you've worked your way up to being the president of Boston and Detroit for Digitas. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your career was going smashingly well. Why'd you leave to be the CMO of CVS? So at the time, I was running Boston and Detroit for Digitas, and I was running all of Publicis for Bank of America. And so I started to see all the different possibilities in marketing and had really enjoyed working with the bank across all that stuff. But the real reason is, if you go back to when I had my startup, I actually never got that excitement out of my body. I liked having the ability to build something. I started looking at CVS, and I met the people running it. I found a company that was actually unlike any other that I'd seen in my professional services career. Big scale, very low ego, very humble, never satisfied, always driving ahead. It kind of has, I'd say, the scale of Goliath in the heart of David. Tell me a little bit about the company. It's interesting. A company this size is in Rhode Island. Yeah. Not exactly where you'd (laughs) expect to find a company this size. Is that part of the attitude and the culture of the company? Yeah, I'd say that's true. I'd say more so, though, the attitude of the company comes from pharmacists and pharmacies. And so pharmacists are very caring people, very eye-level. If you look across the 65,000 pharmacies in America, not just CVS, but all of them, it's a grand story of humanity. I mean, these are just wonderful people in local communities all around the country helping other people be a little bit better every day. In a way, they're just kind of very hands-on community organizers. And so there's that attitude that came into it. And then pharmacies... The retail business keeps you humble. There's such a close connection between your actions and the results that there's no in-between of pontificating. (laughs) I had two uncles who were pharmacists, both owned pharmacies. Everybody hung out in those pharmacies. They were in the same little town in Mississippi, and they were sort of across the square. If you go in there, just everybody was there, and hey, how are they catching up? What is the roots of that? Where did that come from? There's two pieces. One is they're just really a part of the community, and they're kind of a safe, accessible part of the community. Even today, when you go into a pharmacy, you don't feel judged. You just feel fine, right? It's safe, and it's accessible. The second part is there's a sense of discovery of new things that could make you better. And so people kind of like that idea too. You know, it's interesting. There's a large group of high school kids that are going into pharmacies like CVS all the time because it's in their neighborhood. It's a place for discovery and the prices aren't too high. And so it's kind of happening still. You know, what's happening with the older generation, actually the younger too, but let's just talk about the older, the epidemic of loneliness. So what you see is a lot of older people come into the pharmacy every day to speak to the pharmacist. It's their human connection. That's an interesting point. So I want to jump into the history book kind of transformation of CVS. This is one of the more amazing stories I've seen as a marketer. Take us back a little bit to the beginnings. I know it was a spin out in 1996, became CVS. So I think it was originally a consumer value store. Yeah. What was the initial thought of CVS and how did it get here? It started as a convenience store, a convenience store of value. You know, you see those around today. You see them in the dollar store and other places. It was a different era, different sort of idea, but, you know, that kind of concept. And then pharmacies were added because it was a way to pull people into the store, right? In fact, we've changed the logo since, but if you look at CVS slash pharmacy, it was, you know, there's a pharmacy in the building. It wasn't one logo. It was like CVS and a pharmacy are here. And in fact, a little interesting piece of history for you. It was called Consumer Value Stores. They were like, we can save a lot more money if we just call it CVS (laughs) 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 on all those signs. (laughs) And so (laughs) that was literally the decision. I love that. I know before 2010, the company had that debate about getting rid of tobacco products. When they finally did it, it made a huge statement about this as a health brand. 
Was there this year, two years of nervousness about this? Emphatically, no. You know, Wall Street's expectations were managed, but what really happened inside the company was sustained high levels of engagement to deliver on the purpose. It was a meaningful difference in the culture. And if you look at what's happened in the five years since that, there has been a constant stream of other initiatives put out there that deliver on the purpose. The stock takes off. Employees are engaged. Your business does well. You make big jumps. Mm -hmm. Why didn't everybody copy you? Why are you standing alone in this? It's a good question. So from a business standpoint, why haven't they copied us? Nobody else had the same set of assets that we had, so they couldn't make money in different revenue streams that we made money in. So that, you know, that's a reality. Some of them do need to copy us. And you're seeing some of it happen today, but I'd say on the tobacco front, it's really hard to say you're committed to health as a retailer and sell something that kills half a million people a year. You make this big move, you put the message out. What do the consumers say? So if you ask consumers, there's two things that you see pop up. One is rah-rah, fantastic. The second is don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Are they (laughs) 50-50? There's a little more rah-rah, but I think people, they want to make their own choices and they don't want somebody saying, I've chosen for you. And I think you'd see that in virtually every sacrificial purpose-driven move that affects consumers. But the people who were really committed to that idea left, others stayed, and more have come. I think there was a 1% reduction in cigarette smoking in the states in which you had stores. So this is a phenomenal thing. This is something that makes me really proud. It should make a lot of people really proud. So in the states in which we had a significant presence, in the year after we got out of tobacco, sales of cigarettes across all retailers in those states went down 1%. Wow. It's 100 million fewer packs of cigarettes sold. I lost my father to lung cancer when I was seven. You're a little too young at seven to really know all the impacts of that. But I have a seven-year-old at the time I did. To this day, I always think about how old is my son now? I didn't have my father. I'm going to be here for him. So now think about 100 million fewer packs of cigarettes sold and how many more fathers and mothers will be there for their kids. Did some of it come from not only you not selling it, but come from you changed the idea of smoking in those states from your advertising and from the statement you had made? Do you think people suddenly said, you know, if it's that bad, I'm going to stop? It was the shot heard around the world. My brother lives in New Zealand. He heard about this. Everybody heard about it. I mean, it's like one of those moments. You know, here's the thing about health in America. Small percentage changes can have enormous impacts. And so you don't need... Everybody to stop, 1%, 100 million fewer packs of cigarettes. You did this commitment and this marketing of both product and your traditional marketing. It was probably the most aligned of almost any effort I've seen. The idea of health, was that something that was being worked simultaneously at the product side as well as the marketing side? Yes. It was first and foremost on the product side and then on the marketing side how do you get out of tobacco? Because we said one day we'll be out, this specific day, 8,000 stores. How do you get a system of people to make sure that 8,000 stores, not one of them, has one pack of cigarettes in it on a certain day? How? It's an amazing feat of operational excellence. Everybody knew what to do. There were processes and procedures. 
everybody had to send pictures back of their stores so that every store was cataloged as not having them because we were afraid somebody would find a pack and say, you said you were out and here's a pack of cigarettes. And what was the big lesson in that for marketers that any marketer listening today could take that? What would they do with it? How would they apply it? If you're going to demonstrate your purpose, do it in a way that people notice. That's an important thing because otherwise it just has no impact. Then I'd say really think about where your consumers are and what they already know is right and deliver on that and they'll reward you for it. You can see dissonance in so many areas. It's because consumers have moved on, but the way a business makes profit and operates doesn't move that fast. And so it creates dissonance. And so if you deliver on something for consumers, they will reward you for it. So you've moved on. You've got long-lived skin. You removed any sunscreen with less than SPF 15 in your stores. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, you began removing beauty products with harmful chemicals and additives. You were the first big retailer to stop selling products with artificial trans fats. You eliminated digitally altered images of models as part of your Beauty Mark campaign. Tell us more about that. There's a couple things there. One is all of these ideas came from below. They didn't come from the top. And it gets to my point about engagement. Maybe it gets to a point about making sure your demonstration of purpose is big enough because it's also going to matter to your employees. So what happened was everybody wanted to participate in this idea. They wanted to participate in our purpose. They wanted to show their commitment to it. Those ideas that you just mentioned showed up from disparate people across the company and then were raised up. And the people who do this own the P&Ls for these things too. And so they're finding ways that they can deliver on the purpose and drive the business. You've got medical clinics, diabetes care centers. You keep inventing more and more ways to make it the health brand. And then, of course, the Aetna insurance acquisition of $70 billion. Where do you draw the line or do you draw the line? I think it's important for people to realize that our stores are less than half our revenue. Because when you say CVS, people think about the stores they see, which is great. But we do have over a 1,000 clinics, and we have a big home infusion therapy business. We service a lot of nursing homes with all the pharmacy that they need. We have a company called Caremark, which is the card you take to the pharmacist. And recently now, of course, Aetna, and there's a bunch of companies in between. And so what you have to do is say... What are the pieces that you need to deliver on your purpose in a unique way? And then how do you assemble those pieces? Our purpose is helping people on their path to better health. So what we're trying to do is create the most consumer-centric healthcare company. The healthcare system we have today was really orchestrated with hospitals and academics and physicians at the core. Consumers revolve around all of that. That's been great. There's a lot of expertise. We've had major breakthroughs. But the lack of convenience for a lot of consumers hurts their engagement. It gets back to the same idea of small percentage movements can have a huge impact. And so our view is if we can build a healthcare company with people at the heart of it and really deliver on their need for convenience and engage them in new ways in concert of this whole system, so not an exclusion of the system, we think we can move engagement, improve outcomes, lower costs, which is good for everyone. The Aetna piece gave us two things. One was data, because an insurance company knows the most about your health. They see all your claims. And it gave us an ability to share in the risk and share in the upside. So if you lower costs and improve outcomes as a pharmacy, you're not going to participate in that. But as an insurance company, you can. You've made all these changes. How long does it take for that to begin to show up 
in the perception of the brand with the consumer. When I think about consumers, I think mostly they don't care about us. They're just living their life, you know. And you cannot get too egocentric about this stuff. And so when the perception is going to change for them is when there's something meaningfully different for them to do or to engage in or some benefit. The first time it happens, they'll say, oh, that was nice, but if you put that into the weighted average, it hasn't done a whole lot. It will have to be multiple times before they really believe you. I think if you look at brands today, which is a pretty fundamental difference from brands in the past, they're built 75% on experience and 25% on the story. One without the other is inefficient. If you just do the experience, but you don't pull it together for people, you're really asking them to do too much. But if you just do the story, you're missing 75% of the equation. And so you've really got to do something useful for consumers over a consistent period of time and help pull the story together for them. And then it will change. I think it takes a long time. Years. Yeah. Let's jump a little bit to culture and you as a manager and a marketer. You talked about this mission-driven culture at CVS. Anything that wasn't expected? We talk about purpose a lot related to will it help you sell more products. The big surprise is how much it's helped in recruiting, how much people want to be part of that. They want to be part of something that is making a difference in the world. They want to participate in that. At all levels? At all levels. You've got, is it 200,000 employees now? Three. 300,000. How do you market your mission internally? I mean, you've got this fantastic story now, but Mm -hmm. as you just talked about marketing, they're not going to learn it themselves. Somebody's got to help them. How do you do it? It's got to be in everything you do. So if you go to our website or you do anything to learn about CVS, you are going to see the purpose right away, and you're going to hear about the actions that we're taking about our desire to have a meaningful difference and impact in the world. Then when you come in from the first day, we've restructured everything. The onboarding is that way. All of our executive meetings are that way. You hear about this again and again and again, and it comes into the culture. And then those people, when they're talking to others, they use the same words. It is really amazing to me. In some ways, what a brand for a company was to consumers in a way, a purpose is to employees and recruiting You know, I could go work lots of places, but this one feels a little different and a little better because it's got that purpose. I could buy lots of things, but this one feels a little different and better because it's got a brand. Do you do an internal telecast, podcast, town hall meeting? What are your techniques to get it out? Yeah, so the challenge that we have is the dispersion of our employees. We have 10,000 locations. You know, Disney's an amazing company, but they have two locations. And so what they can do in two locations is just fundamentally different than what we can do in 10,000. We have 158 locations, and we thought we had a lot. Yeah, that's right. I'm suddenly feeling very small. And so you appreciate, though, the problem of how do you get everybody to think the same way and be on the same page. We've done podcasting to all the employee base. We've done video blogs. We are changing everything in our store so that instead of the standard communications that come down that are quite dry, they'll pick up a device the moment they come in, and that device will be preloaded with stuff that's more sight, sound, and motion for them to understand what we're all about. And then there's the kind of the standard big town halls and stuff like that. General Stan McChrystal came in to talk to us at one point. He ran JSOC in the Middle East with special forces. But he was talking about how they were structured in a very hierarchical way, exactly the way you should be to win a war traditionally. And they were fighting an army that was structured in a very dispersed sort of way. And they had to change everything they did. And I still remember that because that's exactly what we are. We're so dispersed. So you can't really operate in a hierarchical way if you want them to change. And this is where, again, you get back to purpose. You have to know the why and they have to know the why. And then you have to trust their judgment to make the right decisions in each of those locations. 
So you are both a skilled manager and a talented marketing professional. What do you do when your marketing professional views clash with the views of your other really talented marketing professionals in your organization? I kind of have a belief that everybody has a valid point, and so I want to understand their point first. It's actually a little bit mercenary, honestly, because I want to know if my point can be even better. (laughs) (laughs) But then it's how do you engage someone to bring them along. All companies are just organisms of people. If you can't connect with them in a certain way, you're not going to be as effective. Big transformation we've been talking about. What kind of marketer can handle a transformation like that? What skill sets do you need to have? One is a very high tolerance for ambiguity. And I don't just mean, oh, what are we about? I mean, when things change, everyone's roles change. And so all of a sudden, roles are overlapping everywhere. If you need real clarity on what you own and you want to be in control of everything, it's just not going to work. You have to have a really high tolerance for ambiguity. You have to really remember what you're trying to solve because you can easily get pushed down rabbit holes. And in some ways, I think it's been to the benefit of creativity is having goals because it takes all the noise out. Like we're going to achieve this goal, whether it's to get a certain amount of sales or a certain amount of people engaged in something. And that drives creativity. It keeps everyone focused on that. Let's just focus on that and forget who's in which group or whatever. I have this idea I call homeroom and classroom. You could all be in different homerooms, but we're in this classroom today. Oh, that's great. And so today we're going to do this thing. Let me jump to a big macro issue. You started Digitas. You were sort of there when it began as an offshoot. Today, digital's got more money than TV. But, you know, TV has been really the bedrock of marketing for as long as I've been alive. How are you adjust? Actually, I think what's happening, people are realizing that the mediums like radio and TV are much more effective than they got credit for in the last few years. The idea of broad reach is coming back. In some ways, I think we got distracted by the potential of targeting and data and digital. We tried to make everything like that, and we got really smart, but we just weren't reaching enough people to have impact or effect. Then there's the emotional connectivity that both radio and TV have that most other channels don't have. And so what I actually have seen happen in the CMO community is a movement back from being enamored so much with digital. The big question is, how do we reach all of our buyers in a frequent enough way? And you need digital to help with the reach, but you need to have those channels in there to achieve your goals. I've actually been in all three of those. Yeah, right. And when we came along at AOL and I had to go pitch somebody, what are we? We talked about TV as sort of America's hobby, radio's America's friend, and digital was what connects it. That alignment's still going on as to who does what and what's the perfect mix because it's not one or the other. Yeah, we've generally found that we need the full mix to be as effective as possible. And we've tried it without, and digital only, it just doesn't have the impact you need it to have. What advice would you give a marketer who's just starting their career? Curiosity, entrepreneurialism. Stick with those two things and they will take you a long way. Think about the consumer. So of course that's important, but you've got to drive growth. Be an entrepreneur. Have curiosity constantly to find how you're going to drive growth. Find new channels, find new techniques, find new customer sets. Just keep going. Let's keep going on the advice. If you could give advice to the college senior from where you are today, what would the advice be? Creativity is going to serve you well for the rest of your life, and it's generally taught out of you in school, so don't let it happen. You need to be facile in the thinking of code so that you 
can understand the tools. Code is the new canvas. And then I'd say, be kind to yourself. So we wrap up every episode with the greats of marketing, and we give them a big shout-out. Who's the greatest math person, analytical marketer that you know or know of? Amazon has done an amazing job from being a publisher. And the media business that they have built through analytics and the data they have, that is an astounding success. That is a billions-of-dollar business for them that wasn't there a few years ago. Who's the greatest magician? Right now, I actually don't know the person's name, but who's ever running marketing at Nike, I have to just give them so much credit for the moves that they made recently. I did not think that they would succeed, and I think that they saw more than I saw about their business, and they took the risks, and wow, did they hit it out of the park. That was pure connection. Norm, a great chat. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Norm. One, consulting work teaches you to think big and communicate effectively. As in Norm's case, these skills are invaluable to make it to the top of your field. Two, changes in just one company can have a huge impact overall. The ripple effect of CVS dropping cigarettes was a 1% drop in overall tobacco sales in their states. So instead of merely sending the consumer elsewhere for a purchase, their move led to less smoking and better health. Three, when your company changes its focus, everyone's roles change too. As Norm puts it, having a high tolerance for ambiguity will help you and your team weather the storm. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.